ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. If you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, join this SRB table of ranks by going to my Patreon page and becoming a monthly patron. It doesn't take much. $5 gets you an SRB shot glass and a refrigerator magnet. For $10, you get all that plus a promo code for 30% off of books from the University of Pittsburgh Press. The SRB podcast is a one-person operation, and your support will help keep it going. So don't hesitate. Get your wallet out and go to seansrussiablog.org and become a patron. Any serious reader of Soviet history will have read at least one book by Sheila Fitzpatrick. Her scholarship covers a wide spectrum of topics concerning Stalinism as a political, cultural, and social system. Sheila is one of the pioneers of social history of the Soviet system and one of the most important and influential historians of Soviet Russia in the last 40 years. So I'm quite honored to be able to provide listeners with this retrospective interview about her career, work, and her views of the Soviet Union. In the interview, we mentioned several individuals and works. I've provided a list of them with links and a few examples of their work and Sheila's to provide interested listeners with a wider context. Please go to seansrussiablog.org for that material. Sheila Fitzpatrick is the Bernadotte E. Schmidt Distinguished Service Professor Emerita at the University of Chicago and an Honorary Professor at the University of Sydney. She's the author of numerous books and articles on Soviet history, including A Spy in the Archives, A Memoir of Cold War Russia, Tear Off the Masks, Identity and Imposture in 20th Century Russia, The Russian Revolution, and Everyday Stalinism, Ordinary Life in Extraordinary Times, Soviet Russia in the 1930s. Her most recent book is On Stalin's Team, The Years of Living Dangerously in Soviet Politics, published by Princeton University Press. Here's Sheila Fitzpatrick. So you've had a long career as a historian of the Soviet Union and have authored many books and many more articles on a wide range of topics. It's actually, it's incredibly impressive the amount of things you've dealt with in your career. So I thought we'd start by having you talk about what got you interested in Soviet history and what influenced your approach to it? Well, this takes us way back um, to the beginning of the 60s, I guess, when um, I was just uh, finishing up as a, as a student of, of, of history at the University of Melbourne. And what I'd got particularly interested in was 20th century European history and what I saw as the, the sort of the highlights, if, or when, if, if whatever is the negative version of highlights, uh, that is Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. And I was interested in both of them, uh, but I didn't have German, and I did have more or less usable Russian. Uh, now, the Soviet history interested me particularly because it seemed to be uh, a sort of a virgin field, more or less, that, that is, there was nothing... Though there was very little that I would rec- I could recognize as historical study of it. There was work by political scientists, there was work by literary people to an extent. There was, of course, an enormous amount of propaganda, uh, both pro and con. Uh, but I saw that as a challenge to try and see whether, uh, you know, to, to, to bring a historical approach, and that's probably what I mainly thought of my approach as being, uh, to the Soviet Union. So your first trip to the Soviet Union was in 1966, and between that time and 1970, you spent a total of about a year and a half in Moscow. So what were your impressions like of Cold War Moscow, and, and how did your experience shape you as a young historian? It was extraordinary being there then, because it was um, so cut, so seriously cut off, so, so literally cut off. Uh, from the world one had come come from, that is, the Iron Curtain really uh, did uh, have a meaning, uh, and it was in a sense very unlike what uh, anything one read in the papers would have led one to expect, because you know the Soviet Union was the great and powerful antagonist of the Cold War, but when you got there, uh, it seemed 
uh, in many ways to be like a third world country. In other words, things didn't work very well and uh, uh, the, um, the the sort of everyday technologies were not advanced and so on. It was life there was very uncomfortable, but tremendously interesting uh, because of uh, of its unfamiliarity. Uh, it was different from what we'd been led to expect. Also, in that we had been told uh, it was impossible to make friends with Russians, uh, you know, because they because they themselves were spied on and they would be spying on you and so on. Uh, now, everybody did make friends. Everybody made close friends. And that was a part of um, of all the uh, exchange students' experience in Moscow, uh, including me. And that, of course, left its mark. And, you know, whoever was your... Uh, you, you, you couldn't have a lot of close friends, but you usually had just one set of them. And whatever was that group, that tended to... Um, to influence the um, the, uh, the way you see you saw the Soviet Union. Now the people that I got to know were uh, the Lunacharsky family. I was working on the Commissar of Education, uh, Anatoly Lunacharsky, uh, his family, uh, and one his brother-in-law within that family. His brother-in-law Igor Sats was one of, on the editorial board of Novi Mir, and so that uh, that was the sort of angle. Uh, a vision, I suppose, that uh, I had in those years. And in, in your memoir of these years, you, you referred to yourself as a spy in the archive. So what was it like doing research? Well, the Soviet view of, of all of us foreign uh, uh, students and researchers was that we were, in effect, spies. In other words, we were looking uh, for discreditable things uh, about the Soviet Union. Now, of course, they had to. This attitude was mitigated by the fact that they had let us in, according to official exchanges. But still, their, their default position was always that we were likely to be spying. And the odd thing was that when you were there, you started after a while to feel that, in a sense, this is true, because of course you did want to find out the things they were hiding. That's one of the things a historian does, not in order to tell it to the British or the American intelligence services, but for one's own, your own historical purposes. Now, the the suspicion of foreigners was most extreme in the archives, where they uh, really want to keep them out altogether. Uh, but I managed to get in. I think I was one of the very first people to get in uh, to archives on the Soviet period, but it was it was very hard to do that work because they they wouldn't let you see any uh, catalogues or, or inventories, no obviously anything like that. You had to tell an archivist what you wanted without knowing what they had, uh, and she would uh, get it for you, or of course not, depending on what her reaction was. You know, I was um, doing some re- reading recently on T. H. Rigby's work. And in the process of looking for some of his older works, I came across an obituary that you wrote of him in, in Critica. Talk about T.H. Rigby and, and his work and other scholars of that generation before you that were kind of bucking conventional approaches towards the Soviet system. Harry Rigby, who became a great friend of mine, uh, though I didn't, uh, he's Australian also, I barely knew him when I left, but he became friendly later. He was a most unusual person because although his, his, he had his own individual approach to the Soviet Union, uh, he never, uh, that wasn't characterized as, as revisionism in any, any pejorative way. And uh, he never got into any trouble for his work, everybody, uh, always liked it. It was nevertheless, um, at, uh, it was innovative and, 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 and to me very interesting. Now, who else? Um, I mean, the other scholars, uh, he, he, of course, is political scientist, so, so not a historian. The historian uh, that was working, the, the one who was doing historical work, uh, was E.H. Carr, uh, and he, I got to know him when I was at Oxford. He was at Cambridge. Um, the other people I, I got to know in uh, in that period were, and you could call Carr bucking the system, I guess, but the other people certainly were not, uh, and they and Carr didn't get on with them. Uh, Leonard Shapiro, for example, uh, who was actually very good to me in an early phase of my career in England, uh, and, uh, well, a whole, a whole lot of people who were writing sort of within the totalitarian model uh, framework. Thinking about like Rigby's work and even A.H. Carr's work, did that have any impression on you? Was it an influence at all? Or, or where 
did your influences come from to look at the Soviet system from a different angle? Yeah, I don't think I don't think they came from Rigby's work because I didn't really know it at that point. I, I probably read something, but certainly, no, I wouldn't say it was an influence. And, and as a matter of fact, I'm not really fully convinced that even E.H. Carr, although I thought very highly of him, I, I don't know how much he was an influence. I think the influence on my work, the, the major influence on, on, on the kind of take I had about the Soviet Union was, in fact, uh, Igor Satz in, in Moscow. In other words, a non-historian uh, and somebody who had who was not in any sense involved in, in, in sort of Western debates about the Soviet Union, but had his own... Uh, uh, his own sense uh, of, of, of what had happened there and uh, talked to me a great deal about it. And, and what kind of things that you found striking that came from Satz? Well, uh, one of the things that one got from Satz, uh, uh, well, his was a sort of uh, a black humor view. I mean, he told his stories often in the form of, of anecdotes, anecdoti. And what was, what, what was always clear in the anecdotes was the enormous unpredictable variety of outcomes uh, of whatever was intended. In other words, from Igor's, uh, Igor's story, you would always, uh, there would be um, uh, enigmatic or simply stupid uh, instructions would come down from above, which would be implemented in various bizarre ways, probably not presumably the ways that were intended. And what did that tell you about the system? Well, that suggested to me that uh, the um, control, the totalitarian control from above was less uh, than uh, people outside uh, tended to think. Now, of course, that wasn't the only reason that, uh, that I was drawing that conclusion. Uh, my work in the archives also um, very much tended in that direction because I was working on the archives of the uh, Nardcompros uh, bureaucracy, the ministerial bureaucracy. And of course, the ministerial bureaucracy was always uh, arguing with the Politburo and uh, then the Central Committee apparatus and so on. And so uh, that too was an indication that, that there was a real politics in, uh, in the non-totalitarian sense. In other words, pushing and pulling uh, within the, the bureaucratic framework was going on all the time. Your first two books... The Commissariat of Enlightenment, Soviet Organization of Education and the Arts under Lunacharsky, 1917-1921, which was published in 1970. And then your next book, Education and Social Mobility in the Soviet Union, 1921-1932, and which was published in 1979. And, and both of these works, I think, are considered the, some of the first revisionist works of Soviet historiography. And by the mid-1980s, there were debates and attacks against revisionist scholars like yourself and people like Lynn Viola and Arch Getty, um, which were very intense and had a great personal impact on you and the others around you. So what was revisionism and what was so controversial about it? Well, you, you named the Commissariat of Enlightenment. I don't think that was seen as a revisionist book and it was never attacked. Uh, it was, uh, I, and I wrote it when I was in England. It was uh, uh, what I wrote after I came uh, to America that was, uh, that, that, that caused a lot of controversy. Uh, and the Commissariat book was known in America, but people liked it. Uh, but the Cultural Revolution was the first thing that caused controversy in education and social mobility. Uh, and the Cultural Revolution caused controversy because I was suggesting here that you have an event. Uh, the, the thing that was in, at the end of the 1920s called Cultural Revolution that involved uh, a sort of class war approach and, uh, and a whole lot of militancy, that that event was driven as much by pressure from below as it was from by instructions from above. Now, the, the below in that case was by no means the depths of society. This was uh, institutions uh, like... Um, like RAP, the Proletarian Writers' Organization, uh, or, or the Komsomol, and so on. But nevertheless, uh, from below Politburos, and that upset people. Uh, they didn't feel that that was how things could work. In other words, everything is going to be initiated from above, and its implementation is also going to be uh, determined by decisions from above. So that, that started off... Uh, Controversy, education, and social mobility was a slightly different case because I, in the course of working on Lunacharsky's commissariat, I became extremely puzzled by the question of, of, of uh, 
what they mean by proletarian virginia promotion of proletarians you know what is going on here is this is it just a surrogate for for for, for giving jobs to communists or or what is it anyway after a while i worked out that one of the things that was going on is a kind of affirmative action pro, uh, program on behalf of working class uh, people and also on behalf of uh, national minorities and, and, and so but I didn't, uh, to a lesser extent, women, but I didn't go into that. Terry Martin, of course, later went into the nationalities aspect of it. Uh, so I said, okay, they have this program uh, of uh, this affirmative action program and the purpose of it is basically to produce a new elite because they don't feel the old intelligentsia is to be trust, trusted. And then I thought about the consequences of that and thought that this uh, was indeed a quite an effective uh, form of, a, of way of elite formation. But the notion of upward social mobility in the Soviet Union, uh, all the more as a cause of support for the regime, uh, was uh, turned out, to my surprise, to be extremely controversial in the US. I don't understand why would that be controversial? I mean... <laughs> you might well, you might well ask. I mean, I was always saying, "Why? What's?" I mean, people would say to me, "Don't use the word social mobility." I said, "What do you mean? Don't use these words? What other way am I going to, to describe it?" But it seemed to be that the sense was that in first of all, my argument suggested that there were some people who actually supported. There were some reasons to support the Soviet Union. Some groups that felt in uh, an. Uh, uh, gratitude or identification, so it wasn't just fear, that was a part of it. Um, but the other part, um, I think, was that there seemed to be a sense that, of course, not the social scientists would all deny this, but that upward social mobility was a particular American invention associated with American democracy. And to su suggest that anybody else had it uh, was uh, to imply, um, to, to, to lessen that 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 um, that particular American achievement in England that didn't you know nobody thought like that in England so I, I was terribly taken aback when I moved from England to America at the beginning of the the seventies and encountered this. Well, let me let me ask you another question then about this that's aligned with this and that is. You know, a lot of your work focuses on social history of the Soviet system. I mean, you're one of the main pioneers of social history. So for you in looking at this social promotion and some of the other things you worked at, which I want to get to in more detail in a bit, but what does Stalinism look like from below? Well, it looks, of course, uh, a whole lot less organized uh, and less controlled from above uh, than people were saying at the time. But what if one were to, to turn that around and try and answer it in, in a positive rather than negative way, I think what came through very clearly to me, though not immediately, uh, was the importance of networks. Networks and blood connections and patronage, all these things, which uh, at the bottom level of the society, in terms of the everyday, uh, that was how you, you made your life work, by, by having uh, the ability to operate in, uh, in these contexts. Uh, can I go back, though, to the um, revisionism question, which I, I answered only about myself? Please. The revisionism was, of course, understood in various ways, and by uh, many of the, the people we then call traditionalist, or, or sometimes pejoratively called warriors, uh, it was understood as, uh, as, as an attempt to whitewash or an attempt to see, uh, to look at the best side of the Soviet Union. Uh, from my point of view, it was essentially marking the arrival of social historians uh, into Sovietology. Sovietology had been dominated by political scientists who, when you come to think of it, by the nature of, especially in terms of the model they were working with, but in any case, uh, they will certainly be tending to see uh, to see things being run from above because that's what their sources will tell them. Now, social historians were trying to find other kinds of sources that would enable them to see what happened on the ground, not just look at the instructions from the Politburo and the, and the Soviet government about what ought to happen on the ground. Now, that was the, that was the part of it in history, and that was the most, um, I would say, it, 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 was, it was successful uh, within the profession, certainly. Now, there was another part 
I represented uh, uh, largely by Jerry Huff, to whom I was married in, in the 80s, uh, in political science. And there, uh, a, a, an important part of that was, was considering uh, trying to look at the Soviet Union in comparative terms, and that doesn't mean just comparison with Nazi Germany, but in the broader comparative terms that you would uh, you would normally use, and see both what it uh, how it differed from uh, let's say an American system, uh, and also what it had in common. That was considered a, a very dubious uh, sort of approach. And the other thing that Jerry did in particular was to show. Um, uh, and to theorize uh, the presence of institutional competition, of uh, bureaucratic conflict, of interest group, bureaucratic interest group com- conflict within the system. Let me ask you about sources, because one of the things that you and your students and many in the revisionist circle are known as kind of archive rats. And, and one of the things that distinguished a lot of revisionist historians was really a serious interrogation of available sources. I mean, not just, you know, resolutions that were published, but newspapers and some of the things that try to reflect, you know, everyday life in some sense in the Soviet Union. So talk about your your experience of writing history before and after the archives opened in the 1990s. To understand, I think, the, the sort of thrust of the new scholarship uh, in the 70s, uh, the new historical scholarship. Um, you have to, you have to first of all sort of understand the importance of the fact that there was this exchange for students, the cultural exchanges from the U.S. and from the um, from Britain, which meant that the younger generation of scholars had the chance to go there and work if they were lucky in Soviet archives, but at any rate in Soviet libraries, which had a whole lot more than most libraries in the United States. So it was more or less our situation provided us with opportunities. Uh, to become both archive and library rats, and, and I think uh, uh, we uh, we all did that. Now, uh, probably there was a predisposition uh, in any case. I, I for example, uh, it was not only the... Well, there were a variety of kinds of sources I was doing. In, in, I, I had my Nardcom Cross archives. I had actually my oral history with Igor and other people who'd, who'd worked Lunacharsky to sort of um, balance that against. I was all the time asking my archives about what they told me, so to speak, and 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 then what uh, what my archives had told me. But I was also in in uh, in your library and in the Lenin Library, uh, looking for all those sort of numbered publications of particular institutions where you would, or stenographic reports of meetings where you would find an enormous amount of stuff, especially in the twenties, but even even into the thirties. Uh, and uh, you know things like uh, city directories uh, I found extremely useful. Oblast newspapers they were very hard to get because um, for pre nineteen thirty eight for nineteen thirty eight on it got a bit easier. But pre nineteen thirty eight they were held up in Himki, but we weren't allowed to go to Himki. <laughs> that was close territory for us, and the Lenin Library didn't want to bring them down, so that was a problem. But you could get them in Leningrad in the Library of the Academy of Sciences before that went down in, I think, the 80s. Anyway, there were, so all of us were scurrying around, uh, finding new kinds of sources and, and, well, reveling in it, I would say. Yeah, it must have been a, quite an exhilarating experience. I mean, I just remember the first time I went to Russia and worked in a Lenin library and just looking at newspapers was exhilarating in a lot of ways because of the little kind of nuggets you would find here and there. Absolutely. I mean, I used to I used to spend an awful lot of time reading newspapers. Of course, in the Lenin Library, you could, you could read them in those days on these kind of big newspaper stands. In the, was it the Sudetizal or whatever, had this kind of platform with newspaper reading stands. So you could actually, not only could you read the actual newspaper, but you could read it in a quite convenient form. It was, I've never encountered anything quite so good anywhere else. When they started uh, microfilming it, that was terrible because they microfilmed so badly and they often felt that was a substitute and you could hardly read the stuff. Now, what about after the archives opened after 1991? Because one of the things that that made a major shift 
in your work is not only the access to archives, the greater access to archives, but you wrote about letters to authority, petitions. You wrote a book on the cut to farm, you know, system in the thirties. Uh, you started focusing more on self-expression and identity amongst Soviet citizens. So what was it like to get a hold of those sources and how did you piece them together? What happened when, uh, uh, well, in the late 80s, but even more um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, was that the part of the archives that had been classified, Sikirietni, was open. Uh, and so uh, we had, by the, you know, by the mid-80s, we'd had fairly good access, not to political archives, but uh, in Garth, to, in the, in the, what was in Skaur, we'd had quite good access to the non-secret part of the archives. But in the secret part of the archives, there was all kinds of stuff, in, uh, including gulag stuff and all, everything discreditable was in there. So naturally, that was reflected in the scholarship, uh, because people very rightly went and, 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 and read it, and I did too. But what um, what I ended up by publishing most on was something that was also in the classified section of the archives. That is the Pisma Tulujashitse, individual letters of complaint, denunciation, appeal, you know, petition, and so on. Now I, you know, I had no notion that that existed because in the close, in the open part of the archives, there were letters, but they were those formulaic letters, letters from a cohort as a collective, thanking Stalin for something or other. You know that was available, but these were individual letters that people wrote, and and when one went in there, one saw that the, that this was a main a major form of information gathering by the regime, and also that they were responded to. Uh, so so that was uh, that was a whole new uh, angle on things, on stuff I'd earlier written on, uh, for example, the, the upward mobility and the affirmative action. The opening of the archives didn't make that much difference because really everything. Practically everything significant had been in the open part of the archives. So although there was more material on that, it didn't change. It didn't change uh, the, the sort of basic understanding. I want to talk a little bit more about proletarian social promotion and, and what it means for how it played a role in the early formation of Stalinism in the early late 1920s and the early 1930s. Uh, and, and trying to build this new elite and this new possibly base of support. So what role did that play for the formation of this political system? In the 70s, uh, the revisionist uh, historians were in general interested in the question of social support. In other words, what kind of support, uh, if any, of course, uh, existed within the society uh, for the regime? Now, we assume there got to be some kind of support. Uh, but but where was it? Now we didn't go the route later on. Stephen Kotkin and 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 and, uh, and his gang uh, went uh, went the route of, of basically saying that everybody buys uh, uh, that everybody uh, learns learns to talk Soviet. But we were looking for um, we were looking for specific um, parts of the society that might feel. And in, uh, they were doing well out of, out of things. Now, I always thought, uh, and my initial feeling about that was this is, this is quite difficult. Uh, I mean, it looks unpromising because, you know, you take any group in situ, you take any, uh, any class, well, we can talk about class later, but you say, look at the working class. Well, basically conditions got worse uh, from the end of the 20s and took an awful long time to get better. Uh, you take the peasantry. Uh, collectivization didn't do very many people in the peasantry much good, except perhaps those uh, some of those that it uh, forced to leave. And intelligence also appeared to be sort of getting its its licks. Now, the, the sort of eureka moment from my point of view was when I realized that if you if you stop thinking about people as static as members of static groups and acknowledge the enormous amount of mobility in that society voluntary and involuntary, uh, then you might start to get more interesting answers to the question of social support. And obviously, anybody who's moved up in a society is likely to feel that this is a society that encourages talented people like him or her uh, to succeed. Uh, now, in the case of the Stalin regime, I think that um, the proletarian promotion, the affirmative action, turned out to be enormously important 
are because of the purges. And, and, and perhaps Stalin and Molotov wouldn't have thought that they could risk the purges if they didn't think they had these people, uh, the purges of the elite, if they didn't think they had these people in reserve, because there was uh, a more or less trained, uh, more or less loyal cohort, basically, more or less ready uh, to take the jobs of the people who got purged. Now, an, one of the concepts that it was really influential for me when I was in graduate school was the notion of a legacy of the Civil War experience on the Bolsheviks. And more interestingly, I think the Civil War as a motif for the Stalin Revolution. And this is something you pointed out early on. Talk about the importance of the Civil War as an experience and as a memory. Yeah, well, that was, that was, that was an idea I had that I threw out, and then it never became the focal point of my research. And I always thought somebody else would do it, and they never really did. But what I was struck by, uh, well, I was, I, I suppose the way it worked was that I was very struck by the importance of the bonding experience of having fought in the Second World War among communists that I encountered in the 60s, early 70s in the Soviet Union. That made me look back to the Civil War and to look at the composition and how many people who were Bolsheviks in the 20s had in fact joined in the Civil War. And that led me to the thought again, it's a terribly important bonding experience, mainly males, of course, though not entirely. Uh, and indeed for the party, it's a kind of formative experience. I mean, that's the notion of the party as a fighting brotherhood. Uh, so I found that very illuminating, and I, I waited for somebody to do the detailed research, and as I say, um, it never did happen. But I, you know, I, I was thinking about this just recently, because I, because in there, in that article, I throw out the notion that, um, that basically the Civil War was not something that just accidentally happened to the Bolsheviks. It was... Uh, it was something they 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 anticipated and uh, to an extent even wanted because they thought you'd only win real power by fighting for it. And I, I was talking to uh, somebody who's um, the the young British scholar who's been working on on, on Lenin's terror, uh, and and it suddenly struck me that I had never even bothered then to go back and look at Lenin's works if he to see what he said about the utility of having a civil war to 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 sort of consolidate the revolution. Uh, and Indeed, I could have found lots of stuff, but uh, but I didn't. So it, so it was just, I, it, I think it was a really good idea, but um, um, but it, it wasn't developed. And what about the, the idea of it as a motif for the Stalin revolution? Because when, when I was reading your articles, particularly about the Cultural Revolution, and I was looking into the Komsomol, so I was struck by... I think, if I remember correctly, you referred to it as almost like a reenactment of sorts in the 1928 to 1929. The, the fact that they are, their activism and the mobilization is kind of taking on a very militaristic um, forms. You have, you know, the Kotpohodi, you have a cultural army, you have the light cavalry, and light cavalry was these young people going in institutions and doing accounting checks. So what was it about what was about this memory and this kind of reenactment of the civil war in the early late 20s early 19 early 1930s That was that was a part I did develop of course in other words the effective memory of not memory of the civil war but the civil war myth basically and its impact on the on the the communists the young communists who were too young uh, to have experienced it and uh and, and you get indeed all that military imagery, which is not only the young, but it's also it's it's um uh it's particularly coming from now that is a different thing I think from the the sense of brotherhood of the people who actually did fight in the civil war, uh which in a sense I I reencountered uh only you know quite recently when I did on Stalin's team when it's one of the bonding things for that for that generation. I guess one of the questions I always had is why, like why? Because why reinvoke this memory now? In in one sense, I understand it because it's also the tenth anniversary. Nineteen twenty eight is the tenth anniversary of the the Civil War. Um, but why do you think it functioned as this mobilizing aspect? 
goodness, that seems sort of self-evident to me, and I don't think it's got anything to do with 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 tenth anniversary. Uh, it's it's got to do with the with the psychology of that cohort who come in, who feel themselves. I mean, the, the people who, who who come of age and join the party in the twenties or join the Komsomol, and they feel they they feel strongly involved in it, uh, and they uh, they model themselves on what they see as the central myth. Now, it would have been hard for them to had they tried to model themselves on uh, on pre-revolutionary underground organization that would have got them into major trouble very quickly but it, it seems to me that that's a it's a very comprehensible pattern that a, uh, that a younger generation that has just missed the war that had grown up with those memories uh, should um, should embrace it in their own mythology now another major important theme in your work is identity and in particular class identity but also Soviet identity more broadly. So talk about identity in the early Soviet context and, and what it says about those living in the 1920s and 1930s. I was never, to start off with class, uh, class was, of course, the foundation stone of the analysis uh, 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 and, and the work of all Soviet, Soviet historians. And I was always sort of dissatisfied with it, um, irritated by it, uh, and not being a Marxist myself, I did not uh, a priori embrace it as an analytical tool. So I never knew quite what, and, and there are all these statistics in terms of class uh, um, sort of uh, gathered in the 1920s by, by the, the, the Soviet uh, Marxist Sovietolo- sociologist, sorry, not Sovietologist, sociologist. Uh, so I didn't know what to do with class until I suddenly decided, uh, uh, all the more in that all I could see of uh, of existing social class was its disintegration, for example, of the working class uh, in, in, during the Civil War, the, the departure of workers from the town, so where's your working class? Uh, so disintegration and undermining seemed to me to be quite the striking aspect of the experience of class. Uh, so why, I thought, is it so important? Well, of course, the short answer is that the Bolsheviks thought it was important, but translated into real-world happenings, what results from that is that the Bolsheviks think that the way they can tell who are their friends, who are likely to be their friends and who are likely uh, to be their enemies, is to look at their class position and their class origins. And that's why they're so terribly keen to gather this data, which is in a sense almost meaningless because so many people have been déclassé. Uh, so I, in the end, so I decided class itself is not important in most respects in the 1920s, but class labeling is enormously important. And, and it's so my approach to the question of identity uh, was initially, at least, uh, not so much in terms of of uh, of experience and what you know, people's subjective uh, experience of, of of identity, what they thought they were, but rather what the situation they found themselves in uh, uh, required them. What parts they, that situation required them uh, to play? In other words, you, you you have to build up the proletarian part of your biography or your connections uh, in order uh, to take advantage of whatever's going in that society. You have to play down anything bourgeois, noble, kulak, or whatever that may be in your biography or indeed hide it. So I got very interested in the um, in that, that question of the, the, the necessary reinvention of self that follows a revolution. Is, is this what you mean by the notion of file self? Oh, the file self is the, you know, that, that's an offshoot of it. The, because it was so important to the Soviet bureaucracy, the Soviet regime, uh, uh, to know what class everybody was, uh, the Soviet bureaucracy created, uh, uh, attempted to establish this in everybody's file, every, uh, which is where the question of social position and social origin is very important. So I became interested in this notion that you have, in addition to the person who walks around, who you normally think of as yourself, uh, there's that person called Sheila Fitzpatrick or whatever, which is in your dossier or your dossiers. Uh, And it is in some circumstances possible uh, to influence what's in your dossier. For example, if you are aware that somebody 
uh, has been denouncing you and sending these letters which you've got in will be in your file, denouncing you as the child of a kulak, uh, you can go to the rural Soviet where you came from and get yourself a spravka from the Steel Soviet that says uh, she is the child of poor peasants. Uh, and you take that uh, and you, 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 you put that counter evidence um, in, in, your, in your file. Now, this goes to, a, I think, to another notion in which you spoke about, and that is imposture. Um, the fact that to manipulate not only your file, but the way the society was, you could also pose as many other people as well if you had the means or the desire. Yes, well, that that I find I, I, I was very I became very interested in the question of imposture after having got interested in that in the in the question of labeling of class labeling. I then became very uh, struck by the fact that uh, what is the most popular uh, literary work uh, in the Soviet Union in the nineteen thirties? It it is uh, Ilfen Petrov's stories, which are about imposture, different kinds of imposture. Uh, the twelve chairs, the um, little golden calf, and so on, different kinds of imposture, uh, which are uh, which are necessitated or called forth by actually Soviet institutions. You know, this being the centennial of the Russian Revolution, and your bestseller is actually a short book, the Russian Revolution, and your narrative for it doesn't end in nineteen seventeen. And it, or in 1921, which is the most conventional. But your narrative ends in 1937. Why did you extend the Russian Revolution through the 1920s and the 1930s? Well, slight collect, connect, correction there. I would think it ends more like 1939, in other words, when the purges are over, though I don't give it an exact date. That Russian Revolution, which, by the way, a fourth edition is just coming out, and I've just written an introduction, a preface for the first Russian translation of that, which is quite interesting. Uh, why did I make the scope of it so long? Well, one of the uh, one thing was probably that I'm uh, coming in with a uh, with to some degree uh, a model of the, the with the French Revolution as a model, uh, and the Bolsheviks themselves had this model. Uh, and the French Revolution, as we know, sort of works its way up to the terror and then uh, collapses uh, in 1794, according to most uh, according to most datings. I thought the purges, uh, there are different ways of looking at the purges. One way of looking at them was as um, an imperative of a totalitarian political system. Uh, but there was, after all, only one great purge, so that seemed to me never a very convincing argument. It always had a, they always had a look to me as something related to revolution. In other words, related to that, I mean, revolutions are, I do see them as pathological states where, uh, where you briefly think that, that really radical change is possible as well as desirable. Uh, and uh, you don't count the costs of that. Uh, so I thought the purges fitted in that. If you, um, if you go, um, Sort of backtracking. I've, I, of course, the the decision before that was to include what's been called Stalin's revolution of the late twenties, collectivization, the industrialization drive, and so on in the revolution. That seemed to me fairly clear that it it belongs. Uh, there is so strong a feeling in the party, according to all the materials I read in the nineteen twenties, saying we haven't achieved what we wanted to in the revolution. We have to go further. This nep society is no good. Uh, and then, and then they have a go, uh, and do the uh, economic transformation, or do the economic revolution, as it were, following the political revolution. Uh, so I could have made a decision to end it uh, with that, but that would have been perhaps a little triumphalist. I didn't have that. I didn't have that feeling that perhaps E. H. Carr had that that the um, the foundations of a planned economy were indeed the great revolutionary achievement. That wasn't the message I wanted to come. Uh, from my book. Uh, so anyway, so I, I included uh, the Great Purges and that that annoyed um, quite a few people and surprised other people. Your most recent book is On Stalin's Team, The Years of a Living Dangerously in the Soviet Politics. Talk about the notion of Stalin's team and how you understand Soviet high politics in this period. Well, this is, I'd never done um, 
a political history in this, uh, well, I've done a sort of institutional history, I suppose, with the commissary, but I'd never done a political history. And I'd always had a feeling that I would quite enjoy doing it because the political process is quite interesting to me. The, the kind of politics, not the kind of political analysis based on models, but the kind that looks at human interaction interactions and how, how people function uh, and, and how they get things done and how they function with relation to each other, what kind of alliances they make and so on. When the archives opened uh, and we, we start to be able to work in the Central Party archives, uh, now Ragaspi, one of the things that immediately struck me was the Stalin-Molotov correspondence. This is subsequently published, but I found it first in the archives. And I was quite struck by that because I thought, look, here is Stalin talking to Molotov, actually as an equal, about what um, about what they're going to do in this key period, end of 20s, beginning of 30s. So I initially thought not of a book about the team, but about uh, about Stalin and Molotov. And this morphed over time into a book uh, about the whole, about the whole, well, one could say the Politburo, except that there was a formal Politburo which was was more or less the same personnel as Stalin's team, but not exactly. And one of the ways in which Stalin exercised power was to uh, was to uh, to drop and and uh, and co-op people um, to his team. I was interested in in doing that thing, as I said. My 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 basic uh, the the basic stimulus was to. Uh, to have a go at writing high, uh, uh, a high political history, uh, which I wanted to do. I have an article about this that came out, oh, it was a Critica, um, sometime before I wrote it, Politics is Practice, and I wanted to look at the practices of high politics. I wanted to bring the kind of approach I had used in everyday Stalinism for ordinary, in quotes, people, uh, to look at the behavior of people at the top of the political system. So that's that's the sort of genesis of that. What I found, I, I was, um, I, I, uh, my investigation certainly confirmed uh, the the fact that Stalin was unchallenged uh, captain of his team, but it also confirmed that he wanted uh, a team around him, not just of yes men. He wanted them to actually argue their institutional positions, not not ideological positions, but different institutional positions. But above, he wanted them as a sounding board and as an information, as a way of getting information. And he wanted um, them to be competent. I mean, because the, the members of Stalin's team have very important responsibilities running things like heavy industry, the military, and um, and so on. Now, as I worked on it, uh, I I didn't come in with any sort of hypothesis, you know, collective leadership is always a part of, of, of the Stalinist political model. Not not like that, but in a sense I ended up with a feeling that uh, that some notion of collective leadership as well as a strong uh, top man is embedded in that system. And the reason that I came to that conclusion uh, was looking at what happened uh, when Stalin died, which I still find totally extraordinary. The Stalin team minus Stalin take over absolutely seamlessly. That's the first thing, and for a year or so work really quite well together in very uh, over doing uh, conducting a very difficult transition. But they also, and this is the odd stuff, odd that they emerge as very definitely reformers, because many of oh, I mean, Khrushchev gets the credit for all post-Stalin reform, but it's actually the. Um, the so-called collective leadership, uh, which is the old Stalin team, uh, that starts it all off. Uh, so that's more or less the, the, the story of my interest in this question. And finally, debates in Soviet historiography, for better or for worse, lack the, the passion, to put it uh, mildly, as they did during the Cold War. Yet, with increased tensions between Russia and the so-called West, the Soviet past is an increasing reference for understanding the present. So in reflecting on your work, how do you view the history of the Soviet experience and its legacy? I, I, don't, I, I don't myself think that the Soviet past is a, a, a increasing in, in, important in the West, uh, importance to us in the West. I, I would rather think... Uh, Think not, although there, so certainly the attitude to Russia remains uh, retains many sort of Cold War um, characteristics. Uh, 
in Russia, it's interesting to me to see that in Russia, uh, this year, 2017, uh, Putin's regime couldn't make up, they, they couldn't make up their mind what they think about the revolution, and therefore they have no official line on it and no public celebrations, although there is a scholarly conference coming up. Uh, that was interesting to me. Uh, because I had previously, I had noted, of course, as everybody has, that um, Stalin is part of a usable past for Putin. Uh, and Stalin, the nation builder, Stalin, the victor in, in World War II, uh, Stalin, the leader of the superpower. And I suppose without thinking about it, I thought, well, okay, if he likes Stalin, well, then the revolution in Lenin must also be more or less of a part, part of a usable past. But it turns out that's not quite so, that, that Putin likes Stalin a whole lot more than he likes Lenin. And one of the reasons of his doubts about Lenin, quite an odd one, is that he thinks Lenin uh, was too um, not tough enough on the question of, uh, of setting up the union. In other words, he didn't make it uh, sufficiently difficult uh, for the uh, constituent republics to leave. And therefore, he, quote, laid a time bomb uh, in the Soviet Union, which finally exploded uh, in 91. Uh, so... That, that whole issue of, of Russia's uh, uncertainty, uh, the current Russia's uncertainty about what to do with the revolution, uh, I, I find that uh, to be very interesting. That was Sheila Fitzpatrick, Bernadotte E. Schmidt Distinguished Service Professor Emerita at the University of Chicago and an honorary professor at the University of Sydney. Her most recent book is On Stalin's Team, The Years of Living Dangerously in Soviet Politics published by Princeton University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gildery, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. One, two, three, go. Three, go.